Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today as we always do by stating that the goal of this show is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology when possible, but outside of GI as well. We're moving back today to the provider side in an interview with a real change agent in value-based care. Our guest today is Dr. David Herman, CEO of Essentia Health, an integrated health system headquartered in Duluth, Minnesota. In his position, Dr. Herman oversees 77 clinics, 14 hospitals, and 15,000 employees who care for patients in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and North Dakota. I first met David when he was a subject matter expert at the September PTAC meeting, which was focused on the value-based care issues surrounding rural care. His health system covers a large rural area, and despite this, they have shown tremendous success with value-based care. You're going to enjoy his interview. David's an ophthalmologist by training and spent the great majority of his practice career at Mayo in Rochester. And despite 90 peer-reviewed publications as a professor of ophthalmology, he pivoted his career into medical management obtained a master's of management degree, and then became chief of the clinical practice committee at Mayo. Following his time at Mayo, Dr. Herman became CEO of Vident Health in Eastern North Carolina. He joined Essential Health in January of 2015 and has been there ever since. He currently serves on multiple boards, and I don't know how he does this. The boards include the Ronald McDonald House Charities, the College of St. Scholastica, the Minnesota Hospital Association, American Academy of Ophthalmology, the American Hospital Association Regional Policy Board, and the American Cancer Society. Thank God for Zoom, I think. That's quite a list of board responsibilities. Welcome to the show today, David. Well, thank you very much, Larry. It's good to see you again. Yeah, yeah, we're going we're gonna to really pick your brain over the next 30 minutes. To start out, I usually like to start each podcast by allowing the guests to introduce themselves to the listeners. I know I said all those things, but tell us about yourself in your own words. How did you get to where you are today? You know, it's been uh, an interesting journey. You know, in this role, you'll sit down with people that are early in their career and they'll say, tell me how you planned out your career to get where you are. <laughs> and I tell, tell them that's impossible because they're really has not been a plan uh, on this. Uh, I grew up in International Falls, Minnesota. Your listeners are probably familiar with International Falls through weather reports where oftentimes it's the coldest place in the you know lower 48. Went to uh, college, got my degree from the University of Illinois and uh, then medical school at Mayo Medical School, my residency at Mayo, and then I did a fellowship out at NIH uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. It's been a wonderful journey. I've had the opportunity to interact with uh, many mentors in my career. Got a lot of great advice and a lot of wonderful role models along the way. I would say uh, my biggest motivator is I like the people I work with. Uh, I like the job that I do, and I really feel that my job is a privilege and that all of us in healthcare are privileged to serve the people that we serve. That's that's very very laudable and totally consistent with everything I've I've gotten to know about you. But what I was intrigued with is after a distinguished career as an academic physician and ophthalmologist, what drove you to get an MBA and move into an administrative role? So I was, even before I got my MBA, I had the a wonderful opportunity to assume many administrative roles at Mayo. 
And the reason I decided to get my master's was because it's like there's a language uh, that comes with this. And I don't, I can't say that it was the knowledge that really drove me to that. But what it did is it really allowed me to change my thinking. You can change your hat and understand what people are saying and understand a broader context. Uh, one of the things that uh, my wife says is, you know, one of the things you've done is you've taken the job that nobody wanted and turned it into the job that everybody wanted. <laughs> so <laughs> as you can tell by the boards that I serve on, I have a hard time saying no. But the difficult challenges are the ones that intrigue me the most were the ones that I feel that I can learn the most and the ones that I feel that working with the right people, you can make the biggest difference. Well, you certainly have done that. So let's pivot a little bit here. Tell us about Essentia Health. I was very impressed uh, with your presentation at PTAC and really that's why I wanted to get you on the show. But tell us about Essentia Health and its commitment to, to rural health. So we're based here in Duluth, Minnesota, which is where I am right now but we provide care in some of the most rural areas in the United, lower 48 in the United States. So Northern Minnesota, Northwestern Wisconsin, and then North Dakota from Fargo all the way to Bismarck. And what's great about that is that we have an opportunity as our mission is to truly make a healthy difference in people's lives. And one of the things I tell my team consistently is that the people that we serve if we don't serve them and serve them well, they likely don't have a choice to go someplace else. And so if something happened to our care providers in many of the communities we serve, those communities would not have the care within those communities. So it's very much incumbent upon us to be there, be present and be local and provide the highest quality care we possibly can. And so we're very proud to say that Minnesota is one of the leaders in quality have a program that's Minnesota Quality Measures where there's multiple different care measures and outcome measures. And through the great work of my colleagues and in the way that they make it their daily work and their standard work, uh, we lead the state in that. So it's about deciding what's important, providing the transparency to the data, and then making the right thing to do, the easy thing to do for people to be able to do that. And then having the right people do it. I think I shared with you a fact that at Sonar, we're, we're, we get access to cost data through Blue Cross Blue Shield in Minnesota. And looking at the control group, Essentia showed up in our control group. And despite the fact that you're providing care in rural areas where it's more difficult to provide for multiple reasons, you beat the pants off the averages. You, you, you showed that you could provide that care more cost effectively than is provided in major metropolitan areas. So, you know, this, this, was, this was something that really got my attention. Your, your personal role, what, what, what does David Herman do on an everyday basis at Ascension? What is your personal responsibility? So I firmly believe that this one of the important parts of the CEO is to set the tone at the top. And the CEO is probably the primary steward of a culture in any organization. You know, the great thing about culture is that it's very durable. One of the challenging things about culture is that it's very durable. Yeah. And so in, <laughs> so in order to move from this 
world where we just get paid by the click and we take care of people as they come in the door, we have had to make that shift to say, we're going to know who our patients are, we're going to know what they need, and then what we're going to do is we're going to get them what they need before they ask us to do that. And so that's required a little bit different thinking in the way that we do things. Uh, we were early to the volume to value game back in 2011. In 2016, we had an opportunity to say, okay, are we willing to go Medicare Shared Savings Track 3? And for the listeners, in Track 3 of Medicare Shared Savings, there's upside risk and downside risk. Mm -hmm. And when we looked at the systems that we had in place to be able to participate in that and be willing to accept downside risk, we found that we did not have many of the things that you need, care management, the data, to be able to do that and do that well. And so we said, if we do this, if we make this jump, we could lose a significant amount of money this year. But what we said is, unless we make the jump, we will not do that. So what we said is we're going to commit to this. We're going to jump in with both feet. As an organization, we will book that loss that we anticipate with what we have right now. And we will work this year to make sure that we don't have that loss. And by inspiring people, providing people with the transparency to their data, as an example, anyone in our organization can reach out at this moment right now and see where they are on the clinical quality dashboard. They can also see where everybody else in the organization is on the clinical quality dashboard by name. And so if you're not doing what you feel is your potential to do, you can reach out to a colleague and say, tell me how you do that. But by building that, first committing to it, building it and making it transparent, uh, every year we've beat our goals and CMS's goals in that Medicare Shared Savings Program from a financial standpoint, a cost of care standpoint, and from a quality of care standpoint. And then we've just built upon that framework to then move to commercial, to move to Medicaid by caring for people before they need it, making sure they get the preventive care that they need. And we also screen for health-related social factors. How do we work with the communities to help just make people healthier? Our hospitals are full today, Larry. There's nobody in there that wants to be in there. Everybody's looking forward to the day that they get out. Well, you know, you make it sound so easy. Okay. And, and uh, I did, I listened to your presentation and I heard you talk about food deserts and broadband connectivity issues, uh, the household income issues. I know you make it seem easy by, by what, what you just said, but there's a lot of blocking and tackling you're doing along the way. Tell the listeners about this. So in rural America, there's a variety of challenges. First, as everyone would expect, that the distances are vast. So if you're in Ely, Minnesota, and you need to see a cardiologist today, it can be at least a two-hour drive. And it's two, it's two hours when the roads are good, and it can be four hours when the <laughs> roads are bad. So there's those, those distances. They also have a tendency to be older, less education, less income, and at baseline, less healthy. So knowing that and understanding that and making a commitment to it, then you design your care around those things that are just facts of life uh, for those of us that are privileged to serve those people. And then you say, how do we make it easier? How do we make it more effective? How do we make it more durable? So when someone sees us, how do we make sure that they're getting the care that they need even when they go back home? We, you talk about value-based care, and I think you had, 
you had quoted to us at PTEC, 40% of the revenue of Essentia is in one way or another derived from a value-based care agreement. That's, that's correct. And then at the same time, you know, value-based care requires large numbers in order for you to accept that downside risk. How do you do that in rural areas where your populations are certainly specialty-based are much smaller than they, they are in big metropolitan areas? How do you accomplish that? Well, first of all, understanding what they need and then designing your care around that. So I'll give some examples. One of the great things about rural community is everyone knows everyone else in general in a small community, and everybody has a commitment to everyone else. So when we look at, we have three aspirational aims as an organization. One of those aspirational aims is health and vitality with our communities. In collaboration with our communities, when we do the community health needs assessment, we take that something very, very seriously and do it collaboratively with our communities. So we learn from them what their challenges are and what they can do to help us close those challenges together with us and then partner with them. When I first came here, we have a giving program that we give to organizations with communities and we gave it to a lot of different organizations. What we decided we would do is we would change our strategy on that, that we would give it to organizations that had a health focus and we would give it in chunks that were large enough for them to make a difference. And then we would have accountability measures, what we could do to help them, coach them, what we could learn from them to be able to go that forward. So we have over 600 community partners across the footprint that we have that we I think I mentioned during our, my PTAC visit that at each primary care visit, we screen our patients for health-related social factors, financial insecurity, food insecurity, and transportation insecurity. And then when we get that information from them, we then have a program that we use called Resourceful, which we then help them navigate and try to get those services within those communities. And then through Resourceful, and those community partners, we actually can close the loop to find out, did that person actually reach out and make that connection and get the care that they need? So we love to partner with our communities because they have the same interests that we have. Um, I'm gonna break here for a second. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Dr. David Herman, CEO of Essentia Health. You mentioned in, in your PTAC presentation, your three A's, mm -hmm. tell us about that. Well, the first one is analytics. In order to, we have a tremendous amount of data within our EHR about our patients. We partner with both CMS and commercial insurers to get as much information from them as we can. And we use that analytics to try to determine where the gaps are. The second A to that, Larry, is action. When we find the gaps, we say, what are the actions that we need to take either by ourselves, along with a community partner, or by informing a community partner of where that gap is, what that action is going to be. And then the third A is accountability. How do we measure the results that we get from the interventions that we use? How do we then hold ourselves accountable for the results that we wanted to get? And then what we continually do is tweak that along the way. So if we noticed a gap through our analytics, if we took an action and that action didn't close the gap, 
because we were able to go back from the accountability, okay, what's next? Mm -hmm. Everything you try is not going to work. Let's move it. Let's move it fast. Let's have it fail fast. And then let's say, okay, what's next? The nice thing about when plan A doesn't work, Larry, is there's another 25 letters to the alphabet. We'll go to plan B, C, or D, (laughs) and we'll learn from those. It's a continuing learning process. And that's really what it makes it so exciting to be able to do this. And then when you get to measure the impact on the health of a community, measure the impact at a community level, measure the impact at the individual level. We actually, when we, through our clinical quality dashboard, I'll use, uh, since many of your uh, viewers are GI, uh, we actually measure how we do in colon cancer screening. And then what we will do is compare ourselves to the state average, what percentage of our patients that we've agreed to, we're going to work with, have their colon cancer screening. And then we will interpret that back to life years saved for our providers. So it's not just a number. It's a person. That person is likely our neighbor in one of these communities. And the fact that we were able to do colon cancer screening well above the state average makes a definite impact in the people that we're privileged to serve. They'll get to have more birthday parties. They'll get to see their children or grandchildren graduate from high school or college or go to the weddings. Making that personal, I think, is an important way to do this as well. Well, you brought up the GIs, so I I have to build upon that a little bit. Most gastroenterologists around the country are really not receiving very, very much of their compensation from value based care. They are predominantly fee for service providers. And moving the needle with them becomes very, very difficult unless that payment structure is disrupted. I asked you a question about this at the PTEC meeting, and you gave me an answer that had to do with the fact that you were capacity limited in your in your specialty, uh, most of your specialties. So how does that help you? build value-based care with your specialists. So you can either be capacity limited, meaning you have more demand for your services than you have the capacity to serve. And that's very common in rural areas. Or you can be demand limited. There's a lot of, let's suppose in an urban area, there's a lot of competition uh, among GI groups for those patients. We are capacity limited. So when we can take better care of a patient, and they don't need our medical services today or tomorrow, that allows us to provide access for someone else to access those services. So when you think about having a healthy population and you think about healthcare within a population, it really starts from a patient standpoint at access. So if we take great care of a patient and they were, we had five visits last year and they only need two visits this year, and we're, we push really, really hard to make those virtual visits because those distances can be so vast. That doesn't leave us with three empty appointments this year. This leaves us with three appointments where we can better serve the population that we're privileged to serve. So if I was a gastroenterologist working for Essentia, how am I compensated? Am I, am I predominantly paid on an RVU basis? Um, do you have incentives built into my payment structure for certain value-based metrics? We do not. We used to have a value-based care bonus, depending upon how you, mostly primary care, did this, and it didn't work because 
people want to do the right thing anyway. And paying someone who's already busy extra to do the right thing probably doesn't. And if they don't meet that target, even though it's a bonus, it feels as if it's a takeaway. So we said, we're not going to do that anymore. What we're going to do is we're going to, and there are a variety of different compensation models here at Essentia. There are some specialties that everybody makes the same because they're all supporting each other within that. And then there's some that are RVU based. But what we'll do is we'll make the right thing to do the easy thing to do. So on a colonoscopy standpoint, the input for that patient is generally in the primary care office. If the patient shows up and they're late for their, they haven't had their colonoscopy, it shows up on the primary care provider's screen that this person's due for their colonoscopy. And to schedule that, all they have to do is click. If the patient isn't coming in, what we do is we will have scrub that medical record and we have people that work within the organization that reach out to that patient and says, you're due for colon cancer screening. And we do, it can be the FIT test, it can be Cologuard, it can be uh, colonoscopy, depending on what the patient qualifies for. How can we get that to you? How can we get you set up with that? So it doesn't take as much effort if you build the systems that support that. You can use your expertise as a primary care provider, speaking with the patient, hearing about their lives, addressing their problems, and not have to scrub that chart and go back and say, does this person need a colonoscopy? Uh, do they need a mammogram? You name it. The gastroenterologists then that, that are at Essentia are probably so busy because you're capacity restrained. Correct. Correct. Uh, um, that they're not inclined to do unnecessary procedures, uh, procedures with limited indications. No, no, they're they're too, they're too busy to, to do that. Yeah. Very interesting, and in, in the way you structure that. So, I know this wasn't a question I gave you ahead of this, but I'm going to hit you with a question, and I'm just interested in, in hearing what you say. You've done a lot of things, David. And you've done a lot of them very, very well. And Essentia has, has really moved the needle. Where are you going? What, where, 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 would you, where would you like to take this from here? Well, I think that well, let's just talk about rural healthcare and rural areas in general. Rural America has a variety of challenges right now. Uh, employment in rural areas uh, is down. And most of that employment was based on manufacturing uh, here in Minnesota. It's the iron mines and mining up north. And the number of people that it takes to run a mine isn't the same as it was in 1950. There's automation within everything. But how do we work with people and get them the employment that they need? As an example that I used, I met with uh, Health and Human Services last week, and they said, so what would be, what, give me an example. So I said, why does everybody in the DMV office in the state of Minnesota have to live in St. Paul? Now that we have remote work anywhere, can't some of that work, and whether it's the DMV, whether it is uh, processing claims, that can be anywhere. Why can't we do that in rural America? We don't all have to live in cities. There are tremendous advantages of living in rural America, but if you're a high school senior, why would you have to leave your hometown uh, to get a job that could be done anywhere? So the question for me is, is how do we get society engaged in making sure that rural America isn't 
supported from the outside, but how do we help we, them to build it from the inside? I think another challenge that we have here across healthcare, and this just is, isn't in Minnesota, that skilled nursing facilities are tremendously understaffed because of the reimbursement system yep. that someone can make more working at a convenience store than they can yep. make taking doing the important work of taking care of people who are elderly and literally built the United States. How do we make that social services and how do we make this personal care higher on the list? Because I have people in the emergency room right now who are waiting to get a hospital bed because someone's in a hospital bed that they don't need because they don't have a skilled nursing facility bed to get into. Because we have, as a society, have decided that we'll pay less than a convenience store pays to do some of the most important work that a society can do. So I'm, as you can tell, I'm preaching that, Larry, to anybody that will listen. <laughs> because, and, I, and I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. It's that we have a lot of problems in society that we don't quite know the solutions to. We do know the solutions to some other problems. We just haven't sat down and said, how are we going to take those solutions and turn them into a reality? Well, David, it was great having you on the show today. And we need more David Hermans because you, 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 know, you still have your passion. And I don't think you're ever going to lose that. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Larry, thank you very much. I always enjoy our conversations together. I wish you and your family the best and please stay well. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you to David. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. You can access our podcasts on most all of the podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and others. Learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. Lend your voice to the conversation on X at HC Now Radio. Be sure to follow us on X at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well.